Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I believe that anything that I give with a good heart, like with the right motive and the right intentions, that one way or another, it's going to come back to me 10x down the line. This, you have to really have a strong belief and faith in to be able to do that. But I've seen it play out over and over again, where I'm like, where did that blessing come from? Where did, how did that happen to me? That I'm not all that smart. How did that go my way? So I just have that firm belief, like all the way down to the, my very core, that if I just keep putting good out and keep putting good value out there, that it's going to come back to me and I'm going to be blessed. There's a difference between a dream chaser and a dream catcher. Thanks all for tuning in to Dream Catchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. I've got the pleasure of having Jack Gibson with me today. Jack, what part of the world are you in, man? I'm in uh, Michigan, Jerome. I'm born and raised in Ohio. Moved to Michigan about 20 years ago. Met my wife here, and that kind of made me to stay put, right? <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my daughters, we were watching a movie, and I was like, "It's always either about the woman or the money. Like, it's always the women or the money." One You're of like, those oh, two. It's got to be those two. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, guys are pretty strange creatures. It's one of those two things. Right. So we do things a little different here. If the listeners want to get contact with you after they hear this amazing story what's the best way to do that on my website is myindestructiblewealth.com i also have a podcast same name and everything is kind of housed centrally right there on my site my blog my contact info so it's all right there in that ecosystem wow that's amazing i mean how impressive is indestructible wealth we have to dive pretty deep in on that today and so i don't read bios here it's all you telling the story Kind of, how did you get to the place where you started talking about indestructible wealth? Well, I've made a lot of mistakes, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I started in business 
back when I was in 19 years old. I was a freshman in college. My parents were amazing. No disrespect to them whatsoever because they raised me with incredible work ethics. Their goal for me in life was always go to school, study hard, get good grades, get a job, work your way up the corporate ladder. That was kind of their always what they trained and taught me to do. They had done that very successfully themselves in both their careers. But I always knew like in my heart, I wanted to be like the wealthy uncle who had three businesses. You know, he, had, he farmed, he had a million dollar insurance book. He started another side hustle and he just accumulated multi-million dollars of wealth by the time he passed. So I said, okay, that's who I am inside. Like I'm born an entrepreneur. I don't know where the genetics came from, but that's what I always wanted to do. So Sitting in my dorm room one day, another college student came through passing out flyers about a direct sales opportunity in nutrition. And at first I'm like, no, I don't want to sell anything. I don't want to do that. I want to be a college student, right? And I got that, you know, I thought about that, sat on that flyer for a few days, and then we started started up a conversation. And then that led me to get started with him as in in the business. It's a multi-level marketing business. And I built that up through college and um, it became very successful. And even 24 years later, I still have that business today. And then since then, I've expanded into other opportunities as well. Wait, you actually made money in multi-level marketing? That's unheard of. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, you know, here's my kind of like belief system on that is I think most people go about it the wrong way. You know, they try to get into it for a quick buck instead of looking at it as a longer game. And my philosophy was we're going to lead with the product instead of leading with people making money. In other words, the pitch was, hey, get on the product, fall in love with it. And then you get an emotional attachment to the product so that when the money's not there, because it's not always going to be there, you, you may have a really rough start like I did. But you're going to stay the course because you believe in what you're doing versus the people that come in that I've found over the years, they come into the organization for making money and they don't ever really believe in their product or believe in their mission. Then when they have a rough go, which is inevitable, they leave. So that creates attrition, that creates instability in an organization. Wow. So playing the long game is something that most people don't actually understand from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I think they consider entrepreneurship as you would a job, right? You show up, you clock in, and at the end of two weeks, you get that paycheck. But when you're investing, when you're an entrepreneur, I don't think those things actually connect. Has that been your experience? Because I know that's not the only business that you've been in over the course of your career. Yeah, so... Great question. I had two different tales of this, right? Because I have two different companies that I've gotten involved with. Like I explained, I had a really rough go in starting the direct sales business. I mean, it wasn't until like eight months into where I really had any, even a few hundred dollars a month coming in. And then about five years ago, I started in real estate and, you know, just crushed it out of the gate very, very quick. I was uh, referring investors and selling properties to investors. And so, I mean, first year, I think the first 12 months, I made like almost a million dollars doing that. So when people ask me, like, how did you do that? Well, the reason why that happened is because the last 20 years, the way I showed up to people that they knew, they liked, and they trusted me. 
So it wasn't an overnight success. It was 20 years of building up my personal brand to where people really said, okay, like I can do business with Jack. I can trust him. I know that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So that business exploded. So I think what too many people come into entrepreneurialism thinking is that I'm going to just crush it right out of the gate. And most of the time that doesn't happen. Now in the real estate, I had a really, really incredible first year, but then like everything broke after that. So the next, you know, like year three, year four were super rough. We were losing money. So even people like get a really, really good start in business. And then sometimes your ego gets, you know, in the way, or you just start thinking that, oh yeah, you're the man, you know, you're incredible. And then you make mistakes. You don't see things because of that. And that can work against you as well. So I'm totally fine with a business where if I started not making money right away, because I realized that if I do it the right way and build a solid foundation, that I'm coming into this with a five-year kind of time plan. That's the same way I would treat any investment that I make as well. I'm not really looking to make a huge, big hit up front. You know, I'm looking for what, where's it going to be five years from now? Wow. So one didn't work in the beginning, then started working really well later. The other one worked really fast and then slowed down a little bit. (laughs) And hopefully the other one was kind of covering the stuff while this one wasn't working. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) You end up in utopia where everything's working and now you can put make five-year plays. Am I getting that right? You've got it right. That is exactly right. So now I'm on my third company, which is more of a, I call it, we go from survival mode when we first kind of get started in life. This was kind of me in the, you know, like early twenties where I was just trying to pay bills, right? I was just trying to keep my head above water. And then we go into the, you know, we start to see some success, you know, where, man, this is worth it. Like I'm starting to make some pretty decent revenue and money. And then you hit this point where you're like, you know, you've got the success, but yet something's kind of missing or you feel a little bit empty. And that's where we move into the third and final stage, which is the most important, I think, which is significance. This is where our whole life is then transitioned from, oh, I got to get mine to, I want to teach other people how to get theirs. So Indestructible Wealth, the new company is a significance play, essentially. It's me saying, okay, how can I give back to and bless other people and teach them, you know, all the things that I've learned the hard way over the last 24 years, how can I help compress their learning curve, you know, maybe compress it down into five years and help them avoid a lot of the very, very costly mistakes that I've made. So it's a teaching and education platform to give back. Now, am I in it to not make revenue, make a profit? No, that's not true. Like I want to, you know, I want it to be a profitable venture. But what I'm most concerned about is giving back and that fulfillment. The best quote I ever heard about business is success comes from what you get and fulfillment comes from what you give. And once I really internalized that and really thought about it, I'm like, wow, like I'm just not giving enough back. I'm not giving enough back. And that's why I've got this little bit of feeling of kind of emptiness. Yeah. And you know how we usually try to fill those holes with the emptiness? With a bunch of things. (laughs) Alcohol. Ooh, 
That's a scary one. That's the numbing of it all. I um, yeah. You can't feel the highs if you numb the lows, and I think yeah. most people totally miss that. So, who showed up to help you along the way? Because I mean, it seems like you were doing things that you didn't like go to school and learn how to do. You were figuring it out, but did you have mentors and kind of guides along the way, or how did you figure it out? I did have lots of mentors in various capacities. What I found, Jerome, is that I did get some great advice, but I also got some extremely, what I call misguided advice. So my original idea for my new platform was, I was going to call it the guided investor, but everybody was like, no, no, you got to go indestructible wealth. Because the concept to me of a guided investor is that they're getting the right advice along their path of their journey that they need. And I felt like looking back over the course of time, a lot of the mistakes and a lot of the investments that went you know, sour on me were predominantly from just misguided advice. So I wanna travel back in time and teach people you know, what I learned and how to really get them on the right track and keep them there. Man, okay. And so- I got to ask, because you brought it up. What's the worst advice you've ever got? (laughs) There's two. (laughs) When I was 22, I had hustled all the way through college. I saved up $50,000 in cash, which is no easy feat, you know, to do as a 19, 20, 21 year old. There's lots of temptations when you have, you know, money coming in. But I was super cheap, right? So I wouldn't buy anything. I mean, I was still wearing my like high school basketball shoes going through college. And all my friends were making fun of me, but I'm like, nope, I'm going to save the money. I'm going to invest it and I'm going to grow it. I'm going to get wealthy, you know, quick, right? So I took the $50,000, most of it, I put it into the stock market into, and I just followed the financial advisor, what he told me to do. He said that stocks always go up over the long term. So I didn't even know where he was placing my money. He put it all into tech stocks. That was the year 2000. That was the dot-com bubble burst. Within four months, you know, my money had dropped in half, right? Like, I mean, it was pretty devastating. (laughs) All that effort and energy and time and everything I put into that and the discipline of saving and then just to have it go poof, you know, half of it gone was so frustrating. And I realized then that you know, I was financially unintelligent. I was not financially educated. It's not that financial advisors are all bad. Some are great. Some are awful, just like every profession. But I wasn't financially intelligent enough to be able to discern the difference between good advice and bad advice. So I knew that I needed to get financially intelligent and financially sophisticated, like Robert Kiyosaki talks about in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So That was the one major thing is listening to others without really having the knowledge myself to know the advice I was getting was good or bad. The other scenario that happened was about five years ago, I started into real estate. And so I said, yeah, everything I was talking about, everything went really good out of the gate. Well, it turned out that the guru that I was partnered up with, that he was kind of providing the houses that I was selling, he was running a Ponzi scheme. So he would take investor money. And then instead of using that to fix the houses up, he would just be paying out fake rents to the investors. So everybody thought, this is incredible. I'm getting my rent checks every month. Everything's working. And deep underneath it, like behind the curtain, once you pulled back the curtain, it was really ugly. 
So eventually, like any type of business or any type of investment that's not built on fundamentals and solid long-term, you know, plays, it crashed. So overnight, me and all of the investors that, you know, I brought in that trusted me, like their rent checks went from, you know, 100% down to 20% of rents. I mean, it was crazy, just collapsed overnight because, well, there weren't actually real tenants in the properties. So the big mistake I made is that I trusted, but I didn't verify. And I tell people all the time in business, if you're going to partner with somebody, then you got to trust people, but you also want to verify that what's their background like? What's their past like? How have they typically shown up? Because what I found is like the scorpion you know, they can't change their ways. They're going to sting the frog. You know, they can't help it. That's who they are. So I found that, and people can change. I'm not saying that people can't change, but I want to be, if I know somebody is a scorpion and that's who they are, I want to know that going into it so that I can be very careful and very protect myself and not get into situations like what I got in. And that cost me, you know, that was a couple hundred, 300 grand that it cost me. I don't even know. I didn't ever add it up. I couldn't face it. So it was bad. So, you know, that for a lot of people would be like, I'm throwing in a towel. I'm never doing this again. But you decided to keep going. What happened that got you to the place where you knew you had to keep going? I call this the red pill. Yeah. You know, my pastor explained it to me because I sat down with them and I'm like, why? How did this happen to me? What went wrong? And what did I miss? What did I not see? And then why did I spend a year, two years, essentially two years, my partner and I spent two solid years just trying to figure out how to get everybody, dig them out, try to get as much of their money back as we possibly could. And we did that for a lot of people, uh, but it was no shortage of effort. So we did hang in there. We did hang in there pretty good. And he said, look, he said, you valued your name above money. You said you valued your reputation. So that's why you were willing to lose money and spend time, money and effort and energy to get people back to whole. And he said, you valued that over money. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just your values really showed, uh, became really apparent. So the other thing he told me was that bad roots produce bad fruits. So I was like, wow, what what does that mean? And then I realized that, you know, most of my life I had been always been trying to prove something like I always didn't think I was like good enough or that I compared myself to other people. So I was in this mode of just relentlessly pursuing success to prove not only to myself, but prove to other people that I was good enough, that I was like, you know, that I could be successful. And so I really had to do like a deep dive and try to like get that belief system and thought process out of my mind, heart, body, soul, right? All of those things so that I could like move forward and really enjoy life and not just constantly, I need the next sale. I need the next deal. I need the next thing to be able to prove myself that I, to prove to others that I'm good enough. So where did that come from? The not being good enough? Did, was it, you know, prizing as a kid so that? Your parents would pay attention. Like where, where did that come from? I think it's just, you know, my, no, it wasn't from my parents. I think it was just competitive nature. You know, like I am the most hyper competitive person that I've ever met. A lot of people tell me that. And so 
that's good. That can be a great strength, but it's also, it's your best strength is usually your greatest liability at the same time. So that wasn't channeled and harnessed and utilized correctly. And it got unchecked. And then it just got, it's like a, you know, an avalanche going down the mountain. It just, just started growing in power and magnitude. And so I realized that that wasn't serving me. I wasn't happy and joyful and living a great life by constantly just, oh, I got to make more money. I got to get the next thing. Once I realized that through this whole process, it, you know, adversity really shows us who we really are. And like, it's a really great thing when you're going through it, you don't think it's so great. But once you get on the other side of it and you can look back with hindsight, I think most of us can say it's typically a pretty good thing for the long, long course if you're playing the long game. Yeah. So I, I remember the first time I said I was grateful for my biggest struggle. And when I was in it, like I hated everything about it. Oh, yeah. It's like, this is yeah, ridiculous. Sure. And to the point of how could this happen to me? Like, what made me such a bad person that this happened to me? And then I think about the life that was created on the backside. I was like, well, I never would have done that had this not happened. So, sure. Man. Hey, 100%. I'm aligned. Okay. So, you've been up and down and kind of worked through all this stuff. Like, what's been your worst fear in the process? How'd you break through? I think the worst fear that I had was that, like, I'd have all these people like that would hate me, you know, like that, or they didn't think I did enough. And I think that that was probably a mistake too, is, you know, because that almost killed me. I mean, honestly, like I was in a very severe depressed state going through the whole process of trying to rectify, you know, everyone's situation. So I, you know, hindsight would have been to just say, Hey guys, I'm so sorry that this happened. I did the best that I could. I didn't know that this was going to happen. You guys just need to take your losses, you know, as part of investing, sell your properties or do whatever you think is best with them. And, you know, that's it. Right. And instead I took it as a personal like thing that I, and I took it upon my shoulders that I had to be the one to fix everything. And so that was, I don't know to this day if I made the right move because it did cost me two years, right, of my life, essentially. But I know this, like, I can definitely sleep well at night, you know, knowing that I did everything I possibly could to be a great person and to, you know, rectify as best I possibly could, you know, and I can definitely live with that. So on that side of it, I feel pretty good about how I uh, responded to the adversity, right? So the only thing that we can all do, like I can't go back in time to make any other decisions. All I can do is just say, you know what? You did the best that you possibly could with the knowledge and tools that you had at the time. And forgive yourself for any mistakes you made. Learn from them and move on. So the ability to forgive yourself when you make a mistake or you get misled is one that I think a lot of people have trouble with. They feel like they need to be perfect. They decide that they can't be kind with themselves. And they say things like, how could you be so stupid? Or how did you not know that instead of actually knowing that they did what they could with what they had? 
what allowed you to get to the place where you could forgive yourself? Because that's not easy. No, my mentors, you know, and I was, this was up until, you know, four or five months ago, because I kept recycling, recycling it, recycling it over and over. Why did you do that? Why did you do business with this person? Why did you make the, you know, like I just kept going over and over the same repeated story over and over. And my uh, business life coaches, they said, look, they said, what you need to do is go back in time and have a conversation with yourself and just say to yourself, hey, dude, you did the best that you could with what you knew at the time. And, you know, hey, look, I forgive you. You're going to learn from it. You're going to grow stronger. And you're going to potentially be able to turn this into something great because of the knowledge uh, that you have now. So this isn't serving you to act and keep rewinding this story over and over again. That helped me a lot. Like that, just having that conversation with myself, I was mentally went back and <laughs> was talking to myself. It's, I know it's, it worked and I feel great and light and free. You know, we're going to move forward and, and I'm going to bless other people by, you know, the knowledge and kind of sharing my experiences. And that honestly, like, I don't know if indestructible wealth actually would have ever like I wouldn't probably have launched this platform, which I'm super excited about, had that not gone through that whole experience because that adversity led me to say, you know what? I want to teach other people how to avoid this type of situation so they don't have to go through the same thing, right? Like maybe they're, they're going to go through other stuff, but, but they don't have to go through the same stuff that I did because I'm going to teach them. Yeah, I'm... I'm torn because there's two different places I want to go right now. I think I'll ask this question because it's going to keep everything succinct. So what could you have done or what would you have done different if you knew then what you know now? Like you said, you could, you didn't verify, but how could you have verified when you're working with a thought leader, air quotes on thought leader? Yeah, I, I wouldn't have definitely wouldn't call him a thought leader. He was definitely a just a, he was a, you know, he was a business guy. If I would have done a background check, something simple like that, I'm sure I would have uncovered some things that, that would have put up some pretty big red flags. And I never did that. You know, I never really looked into his past and did, you know, if you're doing, you know, big, big business with somebody like that, I think it's important to do a background check just to see what kind of person that you're dealing with, because they can oftentimes leave a lot of clues. If you're doing a $100, $200 transaction with somebody, you know, do you need to do a background check? No, <laughs> you know, but if you're, if you're getting into a business partnership where there's a substantial amount of time, energy, and money that you're investing, I would strongly encourage anyone to do that. Got it. So Okay, that takes me to the other place I want to go. So I don't think this was a rock bottom, right? Your reputation was on the line. It might have been tarnished a little bit, but I don't think that was kind of the the place where everything was at risk. Did you have one of those moments on this journey? Because you've been doing it a long time and it sounds like you've been doing some high ticket stuff. So you may have been in that position where your back was against you. I would say that rock bottom has hit 
multiple times, you know, throughout my business and entrepreneurial career. I don't think that I don't see anybody in entrepreneurialism in all likelihood being able to avoid getting to that place as close to rock bottom as I could say that I've ever gotten because, you know, I was certainly in danger of losing all of the investments and all everything that that I had at that time. So it was, I was in a precarious situation for sure. I feel like I had some great people on my side that kind of worked and coached me through it. My wife and I were generous givers. You know, we give generously to lots of causes, you know, our church, feeding the hungry, you know, young life, like lots of different things. So I feel like we were protected in that way, you know, that we were given the right kind of resources and people along the way to help pull us through that predicament. And so it's just kind of the circulation of energy. You're putting good out into the world and it's coming back to you in the times where you need it. Yes. And so many people just want to make withdrawals out of their empty bank accounts. (laughs) I don't think that ever actually works. You actually have to put something in in order to get something out. You know, I can't believe, Jerome, how many people that I've heard about come into contact with that have, you know, that defraud people, including myself. I mean, I've had people, you know, say, hey, they borrow a thousand bucks from you. I promise I'll pay you back. Multiple times that's happened. They don't pay back. You know, I've had people, there's always so many attempts at, you know, hacking your credit cards or there's so many instances of it. I'm like, where are all these people? Like, there's so many of them out there. It's crazy. And then conversely, the vast majority of people are good humans and they don't do that, right? But it just seems like there's a lot. And so I thought about like, wow, these people that come up with these ideas, if they would just put the same energy and thought patterns that they put into defrauding people, if they put it into putting, as you said, deposit into the bank of you know, goodness and karma, right? What they would be able to achieve would be mind boggling because some of the stuff that I see Like you have to be super intelligent and work really hard at coming up with a plan to defraud somebody. I'm like, I couldn't have thought of that. I'm not that smart. Like, how do you, if you would have just taken that same energy and put it into something to create good, you'd be wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. So yeah, I never get that. You know what? Here's what I think about that. I don't understand it. I'll never understand them. I don't want to understand them. They're going to do what they're going to do. And I'm not going to be a part of that game. What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so I'm one of those silly, naive people who believe that most people in the world are good. I can hear it in your tone and your voice. You think the same thing. Where did that irrational belief come from? Because everybody that I talk to, like, no, the world's a bad place. Like most people are looking to figure out how they can take advantage of you, but you still give and you know that they may not pay you back. You still offer that gratitude or, you know, you offer generously, but why? Especially if you've had so many experiences where they didn't go the way you wanted them to go. I believe that 
anything that I give with a good heart, like with the right motive and the right intentions, that one way or another, it's going to come back to me 10x down the line. This, you have to really have a strong belief and faith in to be able to do that. But I've seen it play out over and over again, where I'm like, where did that blessing come from? Where did, how did that happen to me? That I'm not all that smart. How did that go my way? So I just have that firm belief, like all the way down to my very core, that if I just keep putting good out and keep putting good value out there, that it's going to come back to me and I'm going to be blessed. Yeah. It's all energy. It circulates. And it's really yeah. interesting to, to see it play out. So you know, let's move into the health part of the conversation. You went down, you came up, you mentioned alcohol and kind of numbing stuff, but how'd you stay healthy or how did you get healthy through all the ups and downs? Because the peaks and the valleys can be intense, man. So like, what have you done yeah. to put your body in peak state, your body and your mind in peak state so that you can go out in the world and face it? I've had really good habits that I've established, you know, for a long time. So, you know, being in the nutrition field, you know, I've always worked out. It's always been a habit. You know, even a lot of times I don't want to go, but I'd say most days I don't want to work out. Right. So just being honest, but it's just a habit and a discipline. You know, I have a routine with my eating and meal plans that it's just the habitual way that I eat. I, I don't have to like eat a bunch of processed food. We never go through fast food. So just lots of great habits that we have lined up. I'm not perfect by any stretch. I love pizza night on Friday night. You know, I do love to have a kickback, some cocktails. I do know like, you know, when I was going through the rough times, I mean, I, I definitely abused to a certain point, not to where I needed to, I don't feel like I needed to, you know, get a professional help, but I was probably on the borderline to that. And, you know, one thing that hit me, one of the guys that I follow, I love his podcast, Mike Dillard. He just made one comment that like, it really hit me like a ton of bricks as far as alcohol goes. He said, so anytime you drink alcohol, you're just borrowing from tomorrow. And just that simple statement, I'm like, I've never lived my life where I want to borrow from tomorrow. Like, I always want to invest today so that tomorrow's better. Everything I've ever done is like the things I'm doing today is I'm trying to create tomorrow to be better. So if I have too much alcohol or too often, right? I think all moderation and all things. But if I do it too often, then I keep, I'm going to borrow. I'm borrowing from my future. That's never worked out well for anybody that borrows from their future. And when you charge things on your credit card that you don't have the cash to pay, you borrowed from the future for today. When's that ever worked out for anyone, right? When you skip the gym and you eat the, all the junk consistently, you're, you know you're putting on the extra LBs. <laughs> you're borrowing from your future health, energy, and vitality. I don't want to borrow. I want to invest. (laughs) (laughs) And trust me, I'm not perfect on any of those things, (laughs) but there is no perfection is just striving to be better than you were today. But the thought of you're taking time that you have in the future and you're using it in advance of when you're actually supposed to have it. That's terrifying when you really think about it, right? You're shortening your lifespan. Like, 
most people don't think that way in any way, shape, or form. So that one hit home in, in a major way. And so, man, there's so many places I can go with you, Jack. Um, yeah, early on, you mentioned like you're in a bunch of different asset classes and different streams of income. Kind of walk down the process of kind of how all the sacrifices that you've made have translated into the prosperity that most people think about, which is, you know, financial. And let's dive into indestructible wealth a little bit so people can get a true understanding of what that means. Yeah, I could talk about this all day long because this is the passion, right? So what we need to understand about wealth is that, you know, the original meaning behind wealth was well-being. So we have kind of changed it in modern American society to where we think of wealth, automatically our mind goes to big house, nice luxury car, all the vacations, all the travel, like that's where our mind goes. But wealth, if we look at the core meaning of it, just meant an overall well-being to your whole life. So when I talk about money, a passion of mine is helping people to figure out how to you know, essentially go from being a have not to being a have. Look, there's nothing wrong with it. I was a have not when I had $200 in my checking account, right? I mean, it's fine. It's not a judgment or anything. It's like, how do we cross that gap so that we do have, you know, some uh, resources. And in today's society, it is very important to live the life that we ultimately want to live. You know, we do need to have wealth. And what most people think of when they think of wealth in terms of money is a lump sum amount. Like, okay, if I hit a millionaire or two million or whatever that number is, then I'm wealthy. And I don't look at it like that at all because I don't want to at some point in my life, like I don't want to wait to arrive somewhere where I have this lump sum and then I'm 65 or 70 and then Maybe I'm not in the peak health years or something could go wrong and it, along this journey. And then I never really get to enjoy, you know, that lump sum. So I look at wealth as multiple streams of passive income. The average, and I don't know if this is true. I just heard this on a podcast. It makes sense to me. The average millionaire has seven streams of income. So we have 14. I just counted ours up. We have 14. Now, some of them are very small, but there's still sources of income that are coming into our household. You know, we got got one really big one. We got, you know, we got some like kind of in the middle and then we got several that are just ancillary. And what happens then when you have multiple streams of income flowing in is that you don't have to worry about money anymore. If you're, something happens to one of those streams, how much do you really care? Well, not that much. So what, where most people are in a predicament and especially going into the age of technological disruption that we're about to go in over the next decade, when you have one source of income and we have all these things that are going to be starting to come into play that are already forces that are giant tsunamis coming into play, artificial intelligence, technology, all this disruption you're in a predicament because one source of income just isn't going to cut it anymore. 50 years ago, fine, no problem. Today, it's not going to work. So I have this strategic plan or process that I've 
kind of come up with, borrowed it from a few people, like, you know, parts of it, and then kind of tweaked it to what I believe has worked really well for me. It's a seven-step strategic plan to where you can start, you know, with essentially from ground level zero. And if you follow the plan sequentially, then the plan will work. You will definitely, if you've implemented it, you will create wealth. You will create multiple streams of income. May not happen the speed at which you want it, but it'll happen. Wow. Okay. And so what's the seven steps, man? You got me on a cliffhanger now. <laughs> okay, cool. We can do it. I'll go through them quick because it could take a while, but I'll go through them fast. So, so step one is increase your earning power, increase your ability to earn more money by becoming more valuable. What most people that I've found that they talk about is called reductionist thinking. They say you're going to get wealthy by cutting back and saving and reducing your expenditures and cutting out the $5 latte. Look, if you enjoy the $5 latte every day, I don't really think that's going to be a significant deterrent to you becoming wealthy, my opinion, right? So that's reductionist thinking. What I suggest people think about is productionist thinking. How can I create more value for other human beings by being of greater service? How do I increase my earning power so that Look, I don't want to cut back anything. Nobody wants to cut back. Households don't want to cut back anything. Government doesn't want to cut anything back. So we got to increase how much income that we have flowing in. Okay, so that's step one. And I tell people all the time, look, if you're in a W-2 situation, you're a teacher, you're in service, you're a police officer, you're in something where your income is pretty capped and you're maybe going to go up with inflation then you have to get a side hustle. I mean, if you really have a strong burning desire to create wealth and you're in a cap W-2 situation, then you got to figure out some other way to create additional income. You're, you're just getting there on a W-2 is very, very difficult. So I think, you know, side businesses, side hustles, something you enjoy, that's very, very important. Okay, so that's step one. And then step two is I call it, uh, you want to attack your bad debts and you want to accelerate your good debts. A lot of people say, you know, like Dave Ramsey, attack debt, attack debt, attack debt. I get where he's coming from that perspective of there are certain debts that are very, very bad. Consumer debt, you know, is very, very bad. You want to be attacking that. But there are debts that are very, very good. Like I love debt. And most people don't have that relationship with debt. They like think it's bad. Well, there's like everything in life, there's polarity, right? So there's good and bad with pretty much everything. So there is very bad debt that you want to get rid of. That's your high interest unsecured debt. You're never going to get wealthy if you have, you know, you're paying 10, 15, 20% on, you know, on credit cards or for things that, you know, have no asset that don't produce cash flow, Like you got to get rid of those out of your life, you know, like attack those. And then accelerating good debt. I use debt to buy property. And I know that I've heard that on your show, several people, including yourself, love income producing property. I've absolutely love utilizing debt to buy more income producing assets. So that's step two. Then So step three, we'll go to that, 
is you want to save up to 60% of your income. So a lot of people listen to that and they're like, okay, I'm out. Your plan sucks. <laughs> I don't want I can't, I'm not saving, you know, 5%. I'm not saving 10% right now. And I, what I tell people is this, it's not going to happen right now. You're not going to all of a sudden be able to make any moves to where you're going to all of a sudden save 60% of your income flowing into your house. Not going to happen. What you can do if you believe that it's important to save more than 10%, because I think it's way too slow to create wealth making 10% off 10%, right? too slow. You'll get there when you're 70, 80, whatever. I want to help everyone get there faster. So what you're going to do is you increase your income. You're going to keep your expenses in check. You're not going to go out and get the bigger house. You're not going to go out and upgrade the car. If anything, you're going to stay right where you're at. Or, you know, I drove a used Mercedes with 135,000 miles on it. It costs like five grand, right? I was making really good money, but I was driving a car that you know, pretty inexpensive car, right? And I wanted to bank and get to that 60% so that I could save more money and then put that money to work. And then the income coming off of that would pay for the Tesla, right? So now I drive a Tesla, but I earned it because my cash flow producing assets are paying the monthly payment on the Tesla. So I went through that multi year period of not driving what I could have driven so that I could drive something even much greater and better later. So I didn't borrow from my future, right, Jerome? I love it. I love it. (laughs) So then step four is you're going to, here's what the wealthy think. The wealthy think safety first, okay? But you definitely want to be taking some small strategic swings for the fences. So this is where you take a small percentage on step four and you invest into some asset classes that could go, what I call go parabolic. Okay. These are your cryptocurrencies. These are your small tech stocks. You know, those are kind of the two that come to mind the most. Pre-IPOs, those are just got opened up over the last year or two to where everyday retail investors like us, we can buy into companies before they go on the IPO process. And that's where a lot of big, big money, that's where venture capitalists make probably the wealthiest people on the planet because they get in on the company before it goes public. So those are the types of things you want to take. You know, I say like if you're under 30, you could go up to like 20, maybe 30% of your total principal money. You could invest into these smaller risk, higher risk, but yet way higher reward type plays. And then step five is you're going to take the majority of your principal money that you're saving and your investable dollars, and you're going to invest it into cash flow, solid, stable producing assets. The wealthy think safety first. That's their number one mantra. They want to protect their money. They want to create safety and they want cash flow coming in off their investable assets. So you got all this cash flow coming in, multiple streams of cash flow. You're buying uh, blue chip dividend stocks. You're buying rental properties, uh, you know, a syndication where you're pooling your money with other investors into apartment buildings or self-storage projects. You're buying a whole life high cash value insurance that so freaking boring. It kicks off five, what, four or 5% dividends. It's so boring, but it creates stability. It creates additional streams of income. So you do that. And then step six is where it really gets fun because that's where you get to take some swings or the fences. So this is where you're going to take the cash flow producing assets and then you're going to put 
chunk of that cash flow back into what's called asymmetric bets. An asymmetric bet is where you invest a dollar to create a hundred dollars. You invest ten dollars to create a, you know, a hundred, a thousand dollars. These types of things are out there. We definitely think that that only ever happens to other people. I got to tell you real quick, the landscaper came into our little smoothie shop that my wife and I run in town. And this guy, struggling landscaper, he bought 10 Bitcoin at $1,000 a piece and 100 Ethereum at like $10 a piece. Okay. This is a guy. So he spent, you know, he invested, I want to say 20 grand and his current portfolio of cryptocurrency is worth, I'd say almost a million dollars now. And this is the guy that I know for a fact struggles big time in his business. He's told me about it many times. Well, when I heard him say that, I'm like, oh my gosh, all I've been doing is safety, safety only, cash flow only. And I could have taken a small chunk of the income coming in from my assets and said, let it rip, man. Let's go. Let's make it, let's swing for the fences. I could have done the same thing, but I didn't think about like this whole, I didn't, I wasn't thinking strategically. So I started a little bit later, but in December, you know, I started going into cryptocurrency with a small but reasonable amount percentage, right? Just like I'm telling you on this plan. And like, you know, that's up like, I don't know, 300% just in four or five months. So, and if it doesn't, if it goes to zero, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like, cause I'll, I'll just replenish the money again from the, uh, the rest of the plan. So that's step six. And then step seven is repeat steps one through six until you're wealthy and always remember to give back along the journey. You're never going to have really enough. How much is enough? Just a little bit more as they say, right? So you want to make sure that you're not waiting until you arrive at some destination to give. Like we've always been philanthropists. You don't have to be, philanthropy is a way of life. It's not a place that you arrive at. You don't need to be a mega, mega multimillionaire, billionaire to be a philanthropist. You can make a hundred dollars and give 10 of it and you can be engaging in philanthropy. You can be a philanthropist. And that to me is the greatest joy of wealth is being a part of that giving back process and creating that energy that I'm putting out into the universe that money is abundant. I can release it. I don't need to hoard it. I know that I can generate more. I know that I'm going to be blessed. I have to trust the process. I have to trust the higher power. Let it rip and let it flow back to me when I'm ready to receive more. The other part of step seven to close out is keep your ego in check. It's not your money anyways. You know, like we know it's not your money because at some point you're going to arrive to a place where all your money is going to be divvied up and given to other people. Maybe you control that. Maybe you didn't set that up to control it. But we know that at some point, it's all going away. So you're just a temporary custodian. You have temporary control over it, but it's not really yours because it's God's money. So like, let it rip and keep that ego in check. Otherwise, I call it ego is your greatest overhead. that's awesome man seven steps to getting wealthy man that's good stuff i like seven keep doing it until you get what you want (laughs) yeah okay so as we wrap up you know i tend to use four questions to close it out and the first one is what are you most grateful for i'm most grateful for 
I have to say my wife for sure, because it takes a special woman to put up with an entrepreneur who has big ups and big downs. And I was asked the question, what's your biggest success? I was in a bachelor party, you know, down in Florida, we were golfing and the guys were picking my brain. They know I've done well in business. They said, what's your greatest accomplishment? I said, you know, it's not business guys. It's the deep connection and incredible relationship I have with my wife. I would trade all of my money for that relationship if I were presented that I had to choose. Priorities. Priorities. Man, most people, I, I won't even go down the path. We don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know what most people would choose. <laughs> yeah. Jack, what dream are you most focused on catching next? You know, I, I don't have any influence, Jerome, in terms of like, I, I don't have a platform to get my message out. I feel like I have something to say. I feel like that I could really bless a lot of people. And I have 2,000 friends on Facebook that all probably they've heard from me enough. Right? <laughs> and beyond that, I have a lot of people, you know, in that side of that space that do respect me and they do look to me for advice and they message me all the time. And it's great. And I love doing that. But I don't have I haven't scaled my influence. I haven't been able to scale my message. So my big dream is I really want to get my platform you know, to a, a big level where I'm really, I'm blessing a lot of people. And I don't know what that looks like, how many that looks like, because right, how much is enough? It'll be just a little bit more, right? But I had just, that's, it's killing, it's like not killing me, but it's, it's really created this burning desire inside my heart that like, I want to be significant for other people. Got to go to scale, making that play, making that play. Yeah. What gift are you giving the world? Well, you know, I'm 43 now, so I want to say it's probably experience. <laughs> and experience usually means I've made mistakes and I'm going to teach you and help you learn from my mistakes. And I've had wins too. And I'm going to teach you my wins. And how did I go about creating the wins that I've created? It's important to learn from both sides of the coin. Yeah. I don't think anybody really reflects on the wins. They just move on to the next thing when they're apex performers. They're just Go, go, go. But I think you can learn lessons on both sides. 100% aligned right. there. Yes. You know, before we wrap it up with the last question, I just want to tell you, man, I appreciate your authenticity. I appreciate your transparency because a lot of people were scared to talk about the things that didn't go as planned. And they hide from it. They shy away from it. But I think what you did was show how a person can make it right how a person can choose their reputation over the money. And I think anytime you do that, you'll never end up having to worry about money because yeah. your reputation is what is precedes you when it comes to making money, man. So thank you so much for sharing with me. And reputation stories. leads to revenue. Yeah. Reputation leads to revenue. For sure. And so the final question, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? That's the million dollar question, right? I think that, in terms of what you just said, most people, their biggest desire in life, what's getting in their way is their desire to look good. So men want to be respected. That's their number one need, desire. That's everything to a man. He wants to be respected. How does he go about getting respect? He wants to look good. So he doesn't want to show that, you know, he's, made a lot of mistakes. He doesn't want to, he wants to show 
that he's got this, you know, super fast, incredible car that like, uh, you know, all these material objects. And so that's getting in the way though, of them being able to really become their greatest self. So ego is the, your biggest overhead. And that desire for respect is certainly getting in the way of a lot of men to be able to really provide the level of impact that they could on other people. What I've found, Jerome, is that when I'm authentic and I share my struggles and the things that I had to go through, that's when people come up to me after a speech, or that's when people message me on Facebook, or that's when people are like, man, that was amazing. I didn't know that about you. I just thought that you just always win. It's, you know, people, their perception is typically not reality. So as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's really trying to make a difference in the world, if, you know, as a W-2 earner, whatever the case, somebody looking to build wealth, just being able to embrace and your wins and your losses, being authentic about it, but making sure that you keep that desire to look good in check, because that's what's going to really slow you down. That's what's going to hurt you. What a solid way to end this episode of the Dreamcatchers podcast. Jack, you gave us a ton of wisdom, drop all kinds of nuggets. So hopefully the listeners have their notepad out and put some of this stuff down on the pad and then they'll put it into practice. And to the listeners, until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.